Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. It's been two years since the OPCW's cover-up of a Syria chemical weapons investigation was exposed. This was when leaked documents showed that the OPCW's own investigators found no evidence of a chemical weapons attack in the Syrian town of Douma in April 2018. But their findings were censored and the OPCW put out a final report that erased what these inspectors actually found on the ground and falsely suggested that there was evidence of a chemical attack in Duma. So since this has emerged, the OPCW's Director General, Fernando Arias, has refused all efforts at accountability. He's refused to meet with the dissenting inspectors and instead has disparaged them in public. He's refused to explain the documented manipulation of the OPCW's own reports and their findings. And he's ignored calls for accountability, refusing to even open up a letter that was recently sent to him by a group of distinguished signatories, including five former OPCW officials. So the latest phase of this came in early June when Arias came before the UN Security Council. And for the first time, he answered questions in open session gave the public a chance to hear him respond to critical questions about the OPCW's handling of the Duma scandal. And this session from Arias, these answers that he gave were very revealing, amounting to really his most extensive efforts to date to mislead the public about the OPCW scandal. So joining me now to discuss this is Piers Robinson. He is the co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies and the convener of the Working Group on Syria, Propaganda and Media, has been all over the story, the Duma scandal, for three years now. Piers Robinson, welcome to Pushback. Hello, thank you for having me. So let's go through Arias's appearance. Before we get to some clips of what he said, I just wondering if you could give us a bit of a background on the lead up to this. I spoke a bit about what the scandal is about, but in recent months, Arias and the OPCW have also been under increasing pressure to provide some answers, answers that they've avoided so far, including from a group of distinguished signatories known as the Berlin Group, the Berlin Group 21, led by Hans von Sponek, a former UN official, and Jose Bustani, the OPCW's first director general, along with four other uh, former senior OPCW officials signing this statement, the, the statement. So give us a bit of the context that led to Arias's appearance at the UN Security Council in early June. Well, in 2021, a statement of concern was, was published, and that came out on the Courage Foundation website and also on Berlin Group 21 website. And this statement of concern was signed by 28 um, experts, uh, influencers, leading voices, um, asking that the OPCW finally come to terms with engaging the issues that have been raised by the dissenting inspectors from the Duma investigation. Uh, and this is this is a, a very powerful letter. It's, it's, there were four former OPCW inspectors signing it. Um, Jose Vistani himself, the first director general of the OPCW, was signing it. And, and then a very large number of very notable individuals, both experts and, and influencers, opinion leaders. 
And this this was um, sent to the OPCW. It was also made public. And uh, following that, there was a proposal which was put through to the Conference of State Parties in the OPCW, suggesting, and this was coming from the Berlin Group, suggesting that um, one way of resolving the ongoing controversy, which has been going on for, for several years now, would be to allow the Scientific Advisory Board from the OPCW to convene some kind of forum which would allow all of the inspectors who are involved in Duma investigation to discuss and review the evidence. And, and this was you know, an eminently reasonable, sensible request being put forward and, and being put to the OPCW. And I think this is the context which has created the pressure in the last several months. And then, as, as you pointed out, you, you have uh, the Director General finally appearing at the UN Security Council and answering questions in open session. Um, and, and this, in a sense, was is, is what, is what he was responding to, is this very notable degree of pressure um, which really it culminates after several years of, of there have been leaks, um, that there have been uh, earlier uh, letters, open letters being issued to the OPCW, and also not, not enough press coverage by any means, but certainly some attention from some parts of the media, for example, Peter Hitchens in the UK, um, and also one or two other papers covered the issue on, on occasions. And so this is really a request coming in, and, and an eminently reasonable one, to just try and resolve the obvious problems that, that there are with the Duma investigation. And what we have with uh, the DG's response at the UN Security Council is his um, is his response to that, which I think we're going to go on and discuss. Yeah, well, let's go to his response again. So this proposal mm. from the OPCW's first director general, Jose Bustani, former senior UN official Hans von Sponek and a number of other distinguished signatories just asking RES to let this Duma controversy go to the OPCW's own scientists, its own scientific advisory board. So RES was asked about this at the UN Security Council, and he responded by claiming that the scientific advisory board has no authority to examine the Duma controversy. The goal of the scientific advisory board it's written in the terms of reference, is to enable the Director General to render specialized advice in connection with very sophisticated, very complicated uh, matters and issues related to um, chemicals and chemical weapons. Which means that the SAB, the Scientific Advisory Board, has no role to assess the findings of the fact-finding mission the fact that the mission is entrusted to investigate and after the investigation to the producer report and this report, I signed the report, I don't touch it, it goes directly to the policy-making organs, in this case, the Executive Council. Which means that the SAB has no authority to reassess the investigation of the, um, of the fact and the mission or to assess any um, opinion of um, inspectors produced on the on a, on the on a personal basis. So that's Fernando Arias speaking at the UN Security Council. Piers, he says that the Scientific Advisory Board, quote, has no authority to reassess the investigation of the fact-finding mission or to assess any opinion of the inspectors produced on a personal basis. There's a lot to unpack there. 
first of all, with a scientific advisory board. So I just published this article up at the gray zone looking at RES's comments. And one of the points that I made is looking at the terms of reference for the scientific advisory board, the guidelines. There's no basis for what he's saying here that they have no authority. In fact, the OPCW's guidelines explicitly state this. They say, quote, in consultation with members of the scientific advisory board, the director general may establish temporary working groups of scientific experts to provide recommendations within a specific time frame on specific issues in accordance with Article 8, Paragraph 45 of the Chemical Weapons Convention. And that relevant part, that relevant article of the convention says the exact same thing. So according to the OPCW's rules, RES does have the authority to convene working groups on specific issues, such as the most contested specific issue, I think, in the OPCW's history, which is the Duma investigation. So as I reported at the gray zone, he appears to be citing restrictions that do not, in fact, exist. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly unconvincing uh, line of argument to, to, to make that the scientific advisory board to the OPCW is in some way is, is, is not, it cannot serve the role of evaluating a scientific investigation. I mean, what, what else is the purpose of it there? And, and one does wonder whether the members of the scientific advisory board felt rather unsure or embarrassed um, at what the director general was saying, because he seems to be saying that, that it's an irrelevant body within the OPCW. Um, so from what you've just described and what you've written in your article, yes, it, it seems that he has no grounds for, for ruling out bringing in the scientific advisory board, aside from the the obvious sort of absurdity of, of suggesting that, that there could be no role for it. And, and you know, even if, if you know, there aren't sort of formal uh, documents which either confirm or disconfirm what role it can play in whatever situation, if you're running a major organization which is responsible for investigations into chemical weapons attacks, and if there are serious questions being raised by your own scientists about that investigation, then if you're in charge of that organization, you can decide what needs to be done in order to ensure um, that uh, a scientific investigation has been properly followed out. Um, the responsibility lies with the head of that organization. It lies with the director general. Um, so e even if it was the case that you had to, as it were, sort of create new rules or create new precedents, that would be an entirely reasonable thing to do and what you would expect in this situation. Um, so it strikes me that there's no excuse, that, or the excuse doesn't hold water that he's putting forward. What I would say that what this really tells us, I think, is that, you know, this reluctance to bring in the scientific advisory board and, and this kind of rather strange uh, turn of phrase that where he talks about uh, the report is given to him and then he hands it on and he sort of signs it off as though he has no responsibility for it whatsoever. What, what this indicates to me, at least, is that that he has no confidence in the investigation that was carried out. That he has no confidence that if this was subjected to proper open scrutiny by the scientific advisory board, by bringing, bringing in all of the inspectors in a forum in which the issues could be properly evaluated and, and as it were, with full transparency, that he's not confident that it's going to come out um, with a clean bill of health. So I think this ultimately indicates that there's um, no confidence in the investigation that was carried out. 
Um, one might go even further than that and suggest that he he is he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows that the investigation was not properly carried out um, and he's trying to cover it up. That's one possibility. Um, but maybe backing away from that, it might be that he, he simply does not have the confidence um, in, in the investigation that was carried out. I, either way, um, it, his, his position does not hold, does not stand ground in any way at this point in time. I mean, it's so revealing. If you're actually confident in your own investigation and you're so confident that the whistleblowers are wrong, why do you refuse to meet with them? And why are you now shunning this proposal to let your own scientists evaluate their claims. I mean, it's the answer is very obvious. And then let's look at another thing he said there in that line. He says that the so not only does the scientific advisory board not have the authority to reassess the investigation, but also he says to assess any opinion of the inspectors produced on a personal basis. So he doesn't specify what he's referring to there. But look, what is the key complaint of the whistleblowers? It's that the original report which was drafted by one of the whistleblowers known in the OPCW as Inspector B, Dr. Brendan Whelan. Dr. Whelan was the chief author of that report, also the mission's scientific coordinator. And he discovered at the last minute that his report was being doctored and that they were trying to rush out a doctored version of his report, which included all these unsupported conclusions suggesting that there was evidence of a chemical weapons attack. And Inspector B, Whelan, thwarted that but that report was never released to the public, that, that basically it was shelved. And so is he suggesting that the original report was somehow produced on a personal basis? It's, it's, it's unclear what he's trying to get at here. Yeah, he, he, I, this strikes me as very disingenuous. The, the kind of line of attack that, that he's trying to develop here is that he, the OPCW is just dealing with the opinions of a few rogue inspectors. But, but as you, I think, accurately point out, what started this controversy, what is it, or what is it, this, the core of this, is that the original interim report was drafted. And then somebody secretly changed it and tried to publish it um, without authorization of the people who had drafted it originally. You have a clear case of essentially fraud going on. Um, and nobody disputes that. We know that that is exactly what happened. The leaked documents, the testimony that we've had to date, um, we know that this has happened. It's never been denied by the OPCW. That is an act of fraud. And that's not an opinion of anybody. That is what happened. And of course, the other major uh, sort of feature of, of events surrounding the interim report was the fact that a U.S. delegation was allowed to go in and brief the OPC, the Duma FFM team, as to what had happened, and, and put forward their claim that it was the Syrian government who had carried out the attack, um, and that was clearly a violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention by allowing a state's party to potentially influence an investigation. These are things which should not have happened, and no one disputes them. We, we know that they occurred. It's, it's a matter of fact. And and that is at the core, as you, you suggest, of, of, the, of the arguments or the claims being put forward by the dissenting inspectors, that until the investigation is done properly, until this obvious fraud that occurred surrounding the interim report is, is, is properly, fully investigated, um, we just can't have any confidence in the investigation. It's not a matter of opinion, it's a matter of whether or not the investigation was done properly, and it clearly wasn't. 
And and this sort of line to try and suggest that we're dealing with a few rogue inspectors and their opinions on what happened or what did not happen in the case of Duma is very misleading. Um, what is really at the core of, I think, of, of the major com- of, uh, complaint is that the, the investigation was uh, essentially fraud or wrongdoing occurred. Okay, if, if you take a report which has been written by a group of people and you then alter that report <laughs> secretly and try to publish it, um, you know, that's clearly fraudulent. Uh, it should not have happened. Um, and that's a matter of fact. And until that's resolved, until you start with dealing with that, then there's no way anyone can have any confidence in, in the final results of the FFM um, investigation or of any subsequent investigations. Um, and one could go broad in that if, if one chose to, um, because obviously the Duma case raises significant questions about uh, a wide range of investigations that have been carried out under the FFM mandate. All right. So before we go on with Arias's answers, uh, debunking Arias's answers, let's actually address one answer that he did not give of many, uh, because it's a good example of the fraud that you're talking about. And I just want to give people a window of just the severity of the fraud that took place here. So let's talk about the toxicologist finding. Arias was asked about this. This was where the original team met with a group of toxicologists from a NATO member state. They looked at the videos taken in Duma and they ruled out chlorine gas, but their findings were erased from the final report. And even the fact that that meeting occurred was erased from the final report. So Russia, the Russian delegation actually asked Arias about this at the UN. Why is it that the final report excluded the conclusions of toxicologists when they stated that chlorine was not the reason for the death of the victims we were shown? The final report does have a reference to a later meeting with toxicologists uh, in September and October, and they are they are in, included in the list of meetings. But the final report does not provide any information on the conclusions of the toxicologists. Uh, how, why their conclusions could be helpful in explaining the original uh, conclu- conclusions of the original toxicologist. Why is it that the final report does not explain what the toxicologist found? Why is this not compared w- with uh, the conclusions of the original toxicologist? Why are they not in the report? And I very much hope that you will be able to answer these questions. So that's the Russian ambassador to the UN asking Arias about the deletion of the toxicologist's findings who ruled out chlorine gas in Duma. Pierce, tell us about this, because it's one of the most blatant acts of fraud, among many, uh, that occurred here. Well, one of the the, the incredible things that that, that one got to read when the original interim report was was finally leaked to, um, to WikiLeaks um, was the details of essentially a toxicology assessment which had been um, obtained from NATO toxicologists, four, I believe, NATO toxicologists, which stated essentially very, very clearly, as you said, that chlorine gas was very unlikely to have been the cause of death of the 43 civilians at location two at the building where, where the chlorine cylinder fell onto the balcony or apparently fell onto the balcony roof. 
And, and the, the, essentially, it's a, it's a medical argument um, that was put forward that it was just extremely unlikely that you'd have people collapsing, dying on the spot. Um, it would be very unlikely that you would see uh, frothing, which comes from pulmonary edema, occurring at the same time, almost immediately. That these things simply didn't make sense to, to the toxicologists. And they were very clear about this. And this was very clearly articulated in the original interim report. Um, it was then all of this material was removed from the secretly redacted interim report, um, which they attempted to publish, was then blocked when um, it was discovered, uh, this act of fraud had been discovered. All of that information was removed from the interim report. Um, and then there was a hope and expectation from the dissenting inspectors that it would be resolved come the final report on Duma. But when you get to the final report put out on Duma, you don't have any resolution of this toxicology issue, of this question as to these people could not have been killed through chlorine. You have, you have what appears to be a fudging of the original toxicology report. So that whereas they originally said that, you know, this, the signs, symptoms, and the witness reports are not consistent with chlorine gas. Uh, that was, um, as it were, sort of fudged to say that so that it could the signs and symptoms could not link to any particular chemical, and so on. But essentially, sort of uh, removing that that critical uh, finding from the from the NATO toxicologists. And there's no explanation because because some toxic apparently additional toxicologists were consulted in the autumn. But no information was given as to what they'd actually uh, assessed in, in relation to what happened in uh, location two. Um, and reading between the lines, it looks as though they didn't have anything to add in addition to the NATO toxicologists. Um, so this absolutely critical question of how did 43 people die at this location? Because if you can't explain it through chlorine gas, um, then you open up a, a whole series of very serious and worrying possibilities uh, as to how they came to die. It wasn't chlorine gas, it wasn't a nerve agent because no traces of nerve agent were found. Then um, the question is how did they come to die? Did they even die at that location? Um, were they in fact people who were killed in other circumstances? Is there foul play at work yeah, and, and so on? None of this is complicated. You know, any kind of investigation of deaths of, of a large number of people, these are the kind of basic questions you ask. How do these people come to die? And so the toxicology issue is absolutely central to this. And it's absolutely extraordinary that there has been this fudging of what the NATO, toxicolog NATO toxicologists originally concluded, that chlorine had not killed these people. Um, and... Ultimately, I mean, I, I think this is a critical part of the overall issue with Duma because it reminds all of us is that what we are talking about here is potentially a war crime um, with a significant number of civilians. We do not know how they have been killed, um, but it's obviously the concern is that you're dealing with a potential major war crime in this case. And, and until you have a proper investigation, um, justice won't be uh, won't be achieved for these people. Exactly. And it's just amazing that you, again, have in the final report a timeline that erases even the fact that those original toxicologists were consulted. So not only are their findings vetoed from history, but even the fact that the meeting occurred is vetoed because, of course, their findings were inconvenient. And then you have these additional toxicology consultations that you mentioned in September and October of 2018, 
So we know that they had those, but we don't find out, as you say, what those people said. And if I can speculate what happened, I think that they did their best to find someone who can go along with the narrative that chlorine gas was the cause of death here. But you just can't find a serious toxicologist who will say that. So all they left us with is this ambiguous conclusion that it wasn't possible to identify the actual cause of death. Yeah, that's, that's certainly what it looks like. All right, so let's go on to more excuses from Aria. So, okay, after he claims that the Scientific Advisory Board has no authority to uh, weigh the suppressed evidence in Duma, then he also says that he himself has no authority to reopen the investigation. This is what he said. To reopen the, the case, uh, it has been mentioned that why uh, we don't we uh, organize a briefing with all the inspectors lately, that why don't we organize a briefing together with the scientific advisory board and the two inspectors? I have to say that the report of the fact and mission related to Duma is in the hands of the executive council and the conference. The director general has no authority whatsoever to reopen this investigation. That concluded and was reported to the executive council and through the executive council to the conference. The matter is in the hands of the policy making organs and not of the director general. So that's Fernando Arias saying that the Duma investigation is no longer in his hands. He has no authority to re-examine it. Piers, before I get you to respond, let me just flash back a few months, back in April, when RAS was asked a similar question about, will you address the documented scientific fraud in Duma? Will you meet with the inspectors? He actually had a different tune back then. All he said then was that the matter is closed. The question of the responsibility of the fact-finding mission is that it is based on an uncontested mandate. And I have no alternative but to say that the fact-finding mission report is the report of our organization and that the matter is closed. So that's Fernando Arias back in April, not claiming some inability to address the Duma investigation because of some restriction by higher authority than, the, than himself, the director general, but just simply declaring as the director general that the matter is closed. Well, obviously, something changed between then and June because in June, he came back to the UN Security Council and suddenly announced that really, no matter what, the matter is out of his hands. And in my new report for the gray zone, we looked again at the regulations and there's nothing in there to indicate that somehow the director general doesn't have the capacity to reexamine an investigation. And somehow such an act is only in the hands of the executive council. And actually, I gave an example of a previous investigation in Syria from the OPCW, where after they issued a report, a final report, Syria invited the OPCW back to do some more investigation because Syria said that your information was incomplete. So the OPCW, without any action by the executive council, went back to Syria and they issued an addendum to their previous report. So here, in the case of Duma, the OPCW and RES are not even being asked to go back to Syria. They're just being asked to listen to their own inspectors, the people who conducted the investigation. So this one, again, to me, Pierre, rings like a very hollow excuse. 
Yeah, they seem to be uh, making it up as they go along. So, so at one moment, the director general claims that the issue is closed, suggesting he has authority and control over the investigation. And a few months later, he's he's saying that um, other people, uh, the state's parties, the executive council have authority over the report and so on. So the big inconsistency there. I mean, this this is, this is really treating um, the public and treating the global public with um, disdain. I think this idea that somebody who's the head of an organisation which is responsible for investigations uh, can, in some way, uh, claim that he he has no ultimately responsibility for the output of his organisation. I mean, what what is what is his job there? What is he supposed to be doing? Is is his job simply to um, <laughs> sign off reports and hand them over? Does he have no authority, no responsibility for the conduct of people within his organisation? Does he have no responsibility to investigate when members of his organisation take a report and doctor it and then try to publish it without the knowledge of? Of the people who wrote the report, this is extraordinary. Were they bringing a U.S. delegation um, to directly pressure the inspectors who are supposed to be protected? Yep. When the chief of cabinet, it was Bob Fairweather in that case, a British career diplomat, is is allowed to bring in a U.S. delegation to talk to um, the the FFM, the uh, fact finding mission. Yeah, this is this is uh, conduct within an within an organisation um, that is clearly problematic, and for the head of that organisation to be trying to make the argument that he in some way has no responsibility for that, there's nothing I can do, is extraordinary. And you know, it's, it's, it's useful to bring in a kind of sort of a, a comparable situation. If, if you have a head of an organisation where there's been a, you know, a case of serious sexual misconduct within the organisation and people are trying to blow the whistle on that, and the, and the head of that organisation is then washing his or her hands of, of, of what was going on, saying, I have no responsibility, there's nothing I can do, etc. Now, most people wouldn't stand for that. That would be headlines in a lot of newspapers very, very quickly. And, you know, there are parallels with this issue here. You have serious corruption and questions of corruption going on within the organization. And the head of the organization uh, turning a blind eye, even as you pointed out at the beginning of, of this podcast, um, even refusing to meet with the dissenting inspectors. It's, it's almost unbelievable. Um, and it's almost unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable that the, the director general has got away with this for so long now. Um, surely the pressure must be building now. Surely people within other UN agencies must be looking at this, thinking this this does not this does not look right. It does not look good. Why don't we simply? Why does not the OPCW simply agree to uh, bring the inspectors together, have a proper review of the evidence, and so on? Um, that this denial of responsibility is is absurd. Um, and is bringing quite clearly the organization into disrepute and through connection, ultimately the United Nations into disrepute. Uh, this is not a tenable situation um, to, to, for, to carry on in the way that it has been and that it continues to. So you mentioned that RES appears to be making things up as he goes along. Well, on that front, it's not just making up fake rules and fake restrictions on his authority to examine the investigation, but also making up facts about the investigation itself. 
One of his key talking points in trying to dismiss the whistleblowers is that the bulk of the investigation occurred after they were out of the picture. He's been saying that for a long time. It's one of the few substantive claims that he's tried to make about the inspectors and about the investigation. And at his UN presentation, he doubled down on this by producing what is essentially a fabricated figure. He claimed that after the dissenting inspectors were out of the picture, especially Inspector B, Dr. Brendan Whelan, the chief author of the original report, he claimed that after they were no longer involved in the investigation, that after then, 70, more than 70 samples, chemical samples from Duma were analyzed, which is simply a fake number because the total number of samples analyzed in the entire investigation, the total number of samples analyzed is 44. So far less than the 70 that RES is now claiming were analyzed after Inspector B, the key whistleblower, was out of the picture. So let's go to RES making this claim, not once, but twice at the UN. The facts on the mission after Inspector B departed worked for more than six months, during which the bulk of the results of the investigation uh, was got by the team. For instance, out of the more than 100 samples, around more than 70 results were got in those last uh, six months of the investigation. Out of the more 100 samples, around seven, more than more than 70 uh, good samples were analyzed after the summer of 2018. The bulk of the investigation, the bulk of the information, the bulk of analysis of all the information that had been gathered came after the two inspectors left. So, Piers, what's your response to that? Now, Arias is really invoking a fabricated number. He's saying that 70 samples were analyzed after the inspectors, after the dissenting inspectors were out of the picture. There weren't even 70 samples analyzed throughout the entire investigation. There was only 44. And again, just comparing the original interim report, the final report, the number of samples actually analyzed after the two inspectors left or out of the picture was 13. So where he got 70 from, I have no idea. Well, one could be um, ungenerous and, and suggest that this is just um, bold-faced lying going on. But what it sounds to me more like is that there's a little bit of things being lost in translation there from uh, the PR people or whoever's communicating information to him, and they're getting uh, muddled up on the numbers. Um, I, I suspect that's probably what is happening there. Uh, with those specific numbers and those percentages. Um, but what that does mean is that the director general is not on top of his game. He does not understand fully the issues because if he did, he would not be making mistakes that he's made. He would understand that he was quoting the wrong figures or inaccurate figures. Um, and that's worrying enough. I think that this, this, we've heard this for a long time now, and it's not just, well, we hear it from the OPCW, we hear it from Bellingcat, the um, UK-led propaganda operation, um, this idea that all of the work was done after um, the dissenting inspectors left the organization. Um, this keeps on coming up. Look, if you sit down and you look at the original interim report that was drafted by Brendan Whelan, um, if, if you look at that report and you then compare it to the final report that was published by the OPCW, you will see and compare them page for page, you will see that broadly speaking, uh, they, they are the same report, um, very, very similar. 
um, that clearly the bulk of the work, interviews, samples, etc., had been completed um, before uh, Brendan Whelan had left the organization. And that's very clear just from comparing the two reports across each other. The final report is they did some additional work um, in relation to a, a few additional uh, witness um, interviews. They had the uh, follow-on toxicology assessment, which, as we've discussed before, didn't seem to add anything to what was um, found uh, in, by the NATO toxicologists in June. And then really the only major thing you have going on after um, in the autumn in, in research terms is the analysis of the cylinders. Um, but still, in terms of you know, strictly qualitatively, but also quantitatively, you clearly have the bulk of work being done um, at the point of the interim report. So this is an incredibly misleading picture which is being presented here. Yeah, and look, on the cylinders, um, so we know that actually, they did yeah. this analysis <clears throat> after Inspector B, Brennan Whelan, was out of the picture. And they reached this these conclusions in the report, basically uh, that it is quite likely that these cylinders were dropped from the sky, which means that they're blaming the Syrian government because that that's who had uh, aircraft capability. But the problem is we can't see the work that led them to that conclusion. They just give us a couple of fragments and they ask us to believe it. But meanwhile, there was another cylinder study done overseen by Ian Henderson, the other dissenting inspector. And we can see the work that he oversaw because that report was leaked. And it, in fact, was the very first leak that came out of the OPCW about this. So it's true that on the cylinder study that there was work done by the OPCW, the problem is we have no way to evaluate it on its merits because they tell us the conclusion that somehow a cylinder dropped through a ceiling and yeah. bounced off the floor and land, landed on a bed, for example, but they don't tell us really how they got there. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the three independent experts, um, and there are some questions about who these experts really were, but these three independent experts who they asked to look at the cylinder issue, look, this was work that was done after Brandon Whelan had, had left the organization, but during the period in which Ian Henderson was obtaining um, a study uh, using two universities, um, the, the material from these three studies, which goes into the final report, does not resolve the issues that which were raised in the original interim report, which related to the fact that there were key observations which could not be explained. You could not explain the lack of damage on the head of the cylinder location to and the steel, the rebars in, in the concrete, some of which have been splayed out by more than 90 degrees. Very, very straightforward, obvious inconsistencies and issues none of those key issues are actually resolved um, in the final report um, based upon these studies which they conducted um, there's some straightforward errors i think in terms of calculations made about the sort of remarkable bouncing cylinder at location four um, but absolutely these independent studies um, i mean if if, and of course it seems almost for sure they did not, but if, if they had resolved these key issues which had been raised in the original interim report, we'd know about it. It would be in the final report, as, as goes for the toxicology as well. Um, but it's not. It's, com it's completely absent. And there's some very embarrassing, thin um, assertions made in the final report, a few pictures added into the final report. Um, and I have to admit, as somebody's, I mean, a, 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 not an expert on, on ballistics, but I understand enough maths and science to understand that 
that this, these are not persuasive or detailed arguments being presented here. And so it really does for me, I, I have this image in my mind of when the final FFM report was presumably handed around to all the diplomats and all the states parties who presumably read this document and nodded approvingly and so on. They obviously weren't reading the damn thing. Um, any any in, informed, you know, in, reasonably intelligent individual can read and see that the kind of assertions being made aren't backed up by numbers or facts and so on. This is a very weak piece of work that you see in the final report. And in some ways, it's embarrassing. Um, and it's, it's quite incredible that these things can be produced, handed over to 193 diplomats from the state's parties. And, and well, obviously, in this case, some have raised questions, but for so many of them to be accepting this kind of material, um, this is, this is uh, not good science, and this is not rigorous uh, report writing by the OPCW. Um, so, you know, they, they might have had cylinder work being going on in the autumn, but it certainly didn't resolve the original issues. And that cylinder issue does not change the overall fact that most of the sample analysis had been done earlier. Most of the analysis of interview witness testimony had been done earlier. And to be quite honest, looking as somebody who's looked closely at all of the reports, um, what you see in come the final report is is an awful lot of obfuscation going on, removal of critical information that you could find in the original interim report is, is, is removed come the final report, and then a lot of actually very meaningless and and, and diagrams quantifying how many films there were from the hospital, for example, and, and so on. Information which looks sort of perhaps colourful and impressive, um, but doesn't tell you anything about the core questions of whether or not the alleged attack occurred. The fact that sort of, you know, nice pretty pictures and images can, can fool so many diplomats or be accepted by so many diplomats is... is is an indictment, I think, of, of the state of the OPCW as an organization. It's amazing what some pretty graphics and fancy animation can do. There also was that so-called investigation put up by the New York Times where they did this 3D animation purporting to prove that the cylinders really came from the sky. And you look at the actual work that they did, and it's based on information that I just think that they've, that, that they, that they've made up. It's not based on the actual... Uh, characteristics of the cylinder, of the ceiling, and the dimensions that are documented in Ian Henderson's leaked report. Yeah, absolutely. The, the New York Times Bellingcat Forensic Architecture Investigations is a good example. This this looks more like narrative building. It's not science. It's not rigorous. All of these issues, and of course, this is the request to bring in the Scientific Advisory Board, all of these issues can be properly, rigorously analyzed by academics and scientists in an objective, transparent way. These are things which can be readily done. Um, and that's what's being refused. What we have instead is this sort of this world, it appears, of you know, narrative building. You see it very clearly with forensic architecture and Bellingcat and so on, creating it's almost storytelling, etc. Um, that's not science, um, but that's the thing which is being allowed, which seems to be even filtering through into some of these, into this FFM report that you see with Duma. And it's not the first time. This has occurred in earlier FFM reports, which we won't go into now, um, where you have this very illogical material being placed, but material which looks impressive. 
Um, what comes to mind is there is the chlorine fusion bomb contraption, which turned up in one of the FFM reports, an absurd contraption um, for a, a, sort of a bomb to make chlorine out of a fusing potassium permanganate with some other a chemical and so on. It was a crazy idea, but it got in there because it's, it's a picture which looked impressive and so on. Um, this is this is you know this is so far away from you know what you would expect from you know an organization which should be priding itself on scientific rigor on rationality um, and and it is it's a it's a, a very sad indictment of, of the state i think of of these organizations and at least in the case of the opcw i mean i, I think it's always important to keep in mind that what we're talking about here are the fact-finding missions uh, which have been set up in relation to Syria. That we're not talking about all of the OPCW, but we are talking about these investigations, these very peculiarly set up organisations, the FFM operations, whereby I think the technical and the verification uh, divisions are removed from the process, that you have a direct chain of command to the Office of the Director General controlling these investigations. Um, and these start to, you start to understand how these have become so politicized. Um, but it's not, it's not science. It's, 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 it's political. Um, some would say propaganda even, which seems to be going on here. Let's go to a few more clips of Arias. He did what he always does, which is try to diminish the status of the dissenting inspectors, the ones we know about in the Duma fact-finding mission. So first let's look at what he said about Ian Henderson. Ian Henderson was the inspector who authored that engineering study, who oversaw that leaked engineering study. The first leak we got that showed us that the people inside the OPCW did not reach the conclusions that were put out publicly in their name. So he said once again that Ian, so RES tried to claim once again that Ian Henderson was never a member of the fact-finding mission. I would like to highlight that one of the two former inspectors was never a member of the fact-finding mission and had only a supporting task to the fact-finding mission for a limited period of time. So that's Fernando Arias speaking about Ian Henderson. From what I know, Piers, I think you could argue that Henderson did have a supporting role. He was not on the original team that went to Syria. He came... Uh, some days into the mission after they were already there. But to claim that he was never a, never a member of the fact-finding mission, well, we've published leaked documents at the Gray Zone showing that he was on a list of mission personnel. He's listed as Ian Henderson fact-finding mission. And we have uh, now new documents that we are publishing at the Gray Zone showing that after the team returned from Syria in July, when there was uh, a summer activities plan being laid out, that Henderson was actually assigned some key tasks as part of the team, including to look at the cylinders. So this claim that he was never a member of the fact-finding mission is not borne out by these leaked documents. And again, you know, overall, this effort to focus on what his official status was, whatever it actually was, let's say these leaked documents are, are wrong somehow. The point is either his scientific grievances are accurate or not. It doesn't matter whether he was a member, but even on the question of whether he was a member, Arias is appears to be very misleading here and, and spreading false information. Yeah, for sure. This is, I mean, 
some of this appears to be just factually incorrect statements being made by the OPCW, denying that he was a member of the FFM when there are documents you know, indicating that he was a member of the FFM. Um, but I, I think you're, the, the more important point you make there is that, in, in a way, this is nitpicking that's going on in order to try to discredit. It, does it actually matter what status or what position either he or anybody else had in relation to this operation? If they have observed wrongdoing, if they have, uh, as it, if they have witnessed um, attempts to manipulate and distort the investigation, whatever their role, whatever their status, um, almost also whatever their experience or hierarchy or position in the hierarchy, they should be listened to. This is what you should do in, in, in any organization. You should listen to people who are blowing the whistle, who are raising concerns. So all, all of this, in a way, doesn't matter. But then having said all that, yes, obviously Ian Henderson was an important part of the, of the investigation. Um, however you want to try to sort of place him technically in, in terms of what his actual formal role was, um, or his role relative to other people, he clearly was in a position to understand and to bear witness to some of the corruption, some of the fraud that was going on. Um, so it's, 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 it's not an argument which really closes down the issues which have been raised. Um, so again, this is, this is a, a game, it's a very crude game that's being played by the OPCW to rather than do the thing which most people, reasonable people would say, the obvious thing to do here is to listen to the concerns raised and to answer and to respond rationally to the concerns and issues raised. What the management's doing instead is trying to discredit and smear its own, its own employees in this situation who are raising the concerns. Again, this is, this is extraordinary conduct um, for, for the OPCW to be in, engaging in this kind of behavior. Um, yeah, yeah, and so let's look at how they how Arias uh, applies the same approach to Inspector B, Doctor Brendan Whelan. And again, Doctor Brendan Whelan, he is the inspector who wrote basically the opening salvo in the standoff over the cover up because it was Doctor Brendan Whelan who wrote the original report. And when he discovered that that report was censored, he didn't just, you know, say a few words privately to one or two officials. He wrote an email that went out to basically the entire Duma team protesting the doctoring of his report. And, uh, and then actually leaked documents that we pre previously published at the Gray Zone show that Bob Fairweather, the then chief of cabinet, tried to have that email recalled, <laughs> wanted to have it basically erased because it was so explosive. Uh, Whelan was calling out fraud. And so Arias at the U.N., tried to also diminish Dr. Brennan Whelan's status in the Duma investigation. This is what he said. The other inspector participated in a facts and admission investigation for the first time, but only in a limited capacity. He could not be deployed in the field as he had not completed some of the inspector's training. He was involved in the draft of the interim report of the facts and mission related to Duma. He confirmed in writing, and I have the document, to senior management in those days in the organization, because I was not still here, I was not yet here, that he agreed with the interim report conclusions. 
So that's Fernando Arias claiming that the chief author of the original report and the scientific coordinator of the Duma mission in its key opening months was only involved, quote, in a limited capacity and only involved in the draft of the interim report, leaving out that Whelan was the chief author of the original interim report and then the author of an email protesting its censorship. Piers, your comments on Arias's statement here. I, I mean, this this is becomes profoundly misleading. This is deception that um, Aris is trying to promote here. This is trying to mislead people into thinking that almost uh, Brendan Wheeling was was making the coffee on 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 the operation and so on. This is this is this is clearly inaccurate. It's clearly untrue. Um, and I suppose this, this also connects through to this kind of line of attack that sort of that he, he left the organization or wasn't around when supposedly uh, sort of a lot of research or work was being done, which we know is, is not actually correct. Um, this is this is just trying to play down and minimize somebody who clearly was very, very important, who was clearly involved in some of the key research and, for example, the toxicology assessment um, in order to try and just send a signal out to people who might be looking, oh, don't worry about this issue, it's just somebody who's not really involved. It's very, very dishonest. Um, it's very, very dis- disrespectful to Brendan Whelan, um, and it's very disrespectful to the public and, and to us who, who are asking reasonable questions of the organization, and what we're getting in return is is crude smear campaigns against uh, these scientists who raise questions. Um, I, I wonder sometimes what the director general is, at, is is going through his mind with all of this. I'm wondering whether he's being protected from the reality of what has happened within the organization and he's allowing himself to be protected. He's, he's deciding not to look more carefully or whether he knows full well that something has gone very badly wrong and he's taken this kind of strategic decision in his own mind that, well, I'm going I'm to shore up the, the organization come what may. I will not let this scandal break out. Um, but it is, it's, it's utterly irrational. And, and again, you know, this, this, these issues could have been resolved so readily right at the start when, when Brendan Whelan, when Ian Henderson were raising questions and issues within the organization and doing it through legitimate channels and so on. Um, they could have responded to them at that point. This could have been cleared up right at the start. But there's been from the very beginning this refusal to engage, refusal to listen, refusal to talk, which is is quite extraordinary. And which ultimately, I think, for, for most people now looking at this who, who understand the, the issues, is that what what seems to be going on is that they know something has gone wrong, and that they're just doubling down now on smearing the inspectors, trying to feed out disinformation. This is disinformation they're trying to feed out. Ironic, really, because, of course, they're, they're claiming that the OPCW is the victim of a, of a disinformation operation and accusations being leveled at Russia and so on for being behind the disinformation campaign. But the reality is it's the OPCW itself and its key backers, the US, France, and the UK, who are the ones who are trying to cover up. They're trying to hide information. They do not want a close examination of the Duma investigation to come out. Um, and and it's, it's, it's becoming quite extraordinary now, I think, this, the, the extent to which they're doubling down 
and how obvious it is now to anyone looking at this that um, that this is I- evading um, evading the truth of, of, of or evading or it's preventing us from having any opportunity to really find out the truth of what happened at Duma. There's a long way around saying this is a cover-up that's going on, and I think that's a term that you've used increasingly, and I think that's pretty much what we have here. We have a major cover-up going on, um, and the point I made before, a cover-up potentially of, of a major war crime in this case. Yeah, and on that point, look, let's respond to one more thing that Arya said, because this line that he's given that these inspectors were driven by personal motives, that they that they were angry, that their personal views were rejected, and um, they led this public campaign against the OPCW, it's completely contradicted by the actual facts. So let's just hear what Arya said about this and then respond as we wrap. Two former inspectors of the Secretariat could not accept that the conclusions of the fact-finding missions facts and admission were different from their own personal views that were not backed by evidence. When their positions could not gain traction within the Secretariat, they tried to publicly portray the work of the OPCW as biased, partial, and that somehow, then somehow the facts and admission report would have been doctored. By doing so, they violated all their fundamental obligations towards the OPCW and its member states. So that's Fernando Arias claiming that the whistleblowers have waged this public campaign because their views couldn't get traction and that they falsely claimed that their uh, their findings were doctored. Well, it's not a question, Piers, as you, as you said before, it's not a question that there was doctrine because we have the original report and then we have the secretly redacted report that they tried to rush out in its place, which completely doctored the original findings as anybody can see by comparing them. And, you know, you raised this point that they tried to go internally. They tried to raise their concerns internally with that initial email of protest from Dr. Brendan Whelan in June, 2018, uh, and then Ian Henderson also raised internal concerns. And then even after the final report came out in March 2019, Brendan Whelan, again, what did he do? We've shown leaked documents before at the gray zone that he communicated with a senior executive at the OPCW to try to get a letter to RES privately to address his concerns. And this executive said that actually Arias's deputy, the chief of cabinet, was very open to receiving that letter. And so Whelan sent Arias a letter in April 2019. We've published that. Arias responded and said that he read the letter with great interest. And by the way, didn't challenge a single fact that Whelan laid out for him. Whelan laid out all of his concerns about how the final report was doctoring the original findings of the team. And Whelan also, by the way, laid out for him all of his duties on the investigation, including being the chief author of the original report. So Arias back then didn't challenge a single fact and again, this was in response to a letter that Whelan sent privately. So this effort then that these inspectors have been part of this public campaign to try to disparage the OPCW, they've only been involved in this issue because they were the ones who were disparaged and because the OPCW refused to take their concerns seriously, basically ignored them. So as we wrap here, I guess your closing thoughts and maybe if you want to comment, too, on just the continued media silence on this story, although it's breaking a little bit. 
But still, despite all these explosive developments, and now you have, you know, the former director general, Jose Bustani, joining the side of the whistleblowers, calling for them to be heard. Hans von Sponek, a former senior UN official, calling for the whistleblowers to be heard. Still, though, the mainstream media has not picked up this story, at least uh, nowhere near to the extent that it should. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a gross misrepresentation of, of, of the inspectors that's being put forward, decided that they, did, they didn't have their opinion or views um, agreed with, and so they went sort of uh, nuclear on the OPCW. It's quite clear from anyone who looks at the track record of this that you have a, a long, persistent uh, attempts to try to resolve the issue internally, met with stonewalling, met with refusal to, to meet, refusal to engage the issues, etc. Um, so it's ex extremely misleading for the OPCW senior management to be putting that argument out. Um, look, this has been going on. This, this alleged attack occurred in 2018, and, and the controversy has been sort of uh, in, in the public domain since 2019. It's 2021 now. This is not going to go away. The quantity of evidence in the public domain is huge, indicating that something has gone wrong with the Duma investigation. And that's before you even get to other alleged chemical weapons attacks. We'll leave that completely out of the picture for now. But the evidence is, 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 a, is a huge amount of evidence, which makes it extraordinary that the mainstream media hasn't engaged it more than they have. There has been some, and I think, as you suggested, this at some point the dam will break on this. I suspect that we are caught in, in the flux of the geopolitical situation and the ongoing conflict in Syria and the sort of doubling down we have of those parties who, uh, you know, who feel they have to maintain the narrative on chemical weapons. Uh, that pressure and all the propaganda that goes along with that, I think, is, has helped to suppress this story. But sooner or later, that will come to an end. Um, and and more and more information will come out. And and you know it's 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 not just the two inspectors that we've been talking about who have spoken about issues within the organisation. There are other people within the organisation who have spoken about wrongdoing within it, and so on. And at some point, you know, this will come out. The, the facts are, are, are painfully obvious. Um, for people who look closely at this, which is why I think in the sort of alternative media world, a lot of people accept that the, the Duma investigation was fraudulent. It doesn't take advanced studies to understand some of the issues surrounding, for example, the ballistic sort of toxicology to see that there are real problems with the official story in this case. Um, it will come out eventually. And the question is how long that will take, but the truth will come out eventually. Peter Robinson, you've been raising questions about this story even before the OPCW leaks came along. So the fact that we've learned so much since then about the fraud that occurred is such a vindication of the work that you've done. And I really appreciate everything you have done and continue to do. And I look forward to having you back as, as more developments in this story unfold. Piers Robinson, the co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies and the convener of the Working Group on Syria, Propaganda and Media. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh -huh.